taking a couple weeks to look at the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Saw his humanity and his divinity a few weeks ago. And then we looked at his works and had his, his atonement that it, he took our place. This week we want to skip forward a little bit ahead of the doctrine of salvation. This kind of goes with the doctrine of salvation that we're going to get to in several weeks. But um, this talks about our relationship with Christ after having come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so we'll talk about how we get saved and and um, what all that means a few weeks down the road. But I do want to talk about union with Christ this week. Let me begin with a word of prayer and uh, we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, thank You for uh, this day in which we can, we can reflect on our own fathers and remember uh, their goodness to us and their leadership in our lives, their example. And uh, we're thankful most of all for You as, as our Father who leads us and guides us and provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. We would be lost and destroyed without You. And so we are grateful that You are our Father and that You lead us. And we pray that You'd help us to um, to obey You as You require and as You deserve. And that we would give our, ourselves fully to You. Help us to understand this um, concept of, of having been united with Jesus Christ in His death and burial and resurrection and... Uh, now we're able to walk in newness of life, able to uh, live lives that are pleasing to You, to live in obedience to You, and uh, may You be honored and and uh, and may You teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, perhaps it would be best to start with the definition of union with Christ. Uh, union with, with Christ is a legal transaction where believers are eternally bound with Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's a legal transaction. The, the, the key word here, uh, one of the key words here is believers. Okay, this is something that's done to believers. And we'll, again, we'll talk about this in, here in a few weeks. But, but another concept that we need to understand is that this is a legal transaction. That is, it's, it's unseen really. We'll talk about this here in just a second when we look at some um, what we call positional benefits of union with Christ, but but they are they are often uh, not felt. In fact, they almost always are not felt. So they are something that that actually happens, but they're not uh, something that we feel or we we feel uh, an experience of it. So union with Christ has to do with this permanent identification that we now have with Christ and His righteousness that we are forever clothed as uh, we are forever clothed with Christ's holiness once we are united with Christ uh, rather than clothed with clothed with our own sin and our own wickedness for example morning all right so we're going to talk about several benefits to union with Christ and I broke them down into three main sections there are first of all positional benefits, and these are the ones I'm talking about that ha- that we don't feel. We don't. We're not going to feel that we're justified that when we get saved. We don't. We don't feel, or we don't have some sort of uh, paper transaction that we're adopted. We don't. 
necessarily feel eternal security, but those things are all happening when we come to Christ. There are also some practical benefits, and these are the ones that we should experience in our lives, and that is perseverance and sanctification. And then finally, there are some unique church-age benefits. And the reason I say that is because these here, these first five, were really uh, something that was a benefit to Old Testament saints as well. But these bottom two here are only benefits for you uh, during the church age. And that is assurance of salvation. Okay, Not that they had no assurance of salvation, but they didn't have as clear of assurance of salvation as we can have. And then also Christian unity, uh, fellowship, was not a word that was used in the Old Testament. Okay, that, That's something that's unique to the church of Jesus Christ. It, there's a union, a bond that we have in Christ. So we'll get to each of those. Start with the first one. That's a positional benefit. Again, these are not something. Uh, these are something like like what happened in a courtroom. Okay, when when you became a believer, you didn't feel justified. You didn't have this this feeling in your body. Maybe a warm feeling. I mean, you might have, but you shouldn't have uh, necessarily because you got saved. Um, it, it was simply a legal transaction that happened between the father and the son. On, uh, on the basis of uh, a profession of faith, on a, on a genuine turning away from sin. Alright, so we'll start with this first one, that is justification. Justification, you've probably heard this word before, it's, it's the act by which God declares a sinner to be legally righteous and treats him as such. Okay, now, what it doesn't say there, and I, the reason I put this in italics is, it doesn't say that God makes you righteous. God doesn't turn you into a righteous person where you are, and when I say righteous, I mean completely sinless. But He declares you, even though you are a sinner, He declares you as perfect, perfectly righteous before Him. Uh, why? Because, again, we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. So that when Christ, when God sees us, He sees Christ's perfect obedience. Um, So you did not become perfectly righteous. You're still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. But God legally declares us righteous because of our union with Christ. All right. A couple things about justification. First is the work of God. Uh, Several verses that, that speak to this, but I'll just mention a few here. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. It is God who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. We don't declare ourselves righteous. God, I'm now righteous before you. Okay, no, we stand in the courtroom of, of God's uh, justice and, and we stand condemned. But God, ha- on the basis of Jesus Christ, looks at us and says, you know what? You are declared to be righteous. Your sins are are forgiven. They've already been paid for. Uh, Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Okay, so justification is a work of God. It, it's a work of God. It's something that God has to do. Number two, justification is a result of the believer's 
union with Christ. Being united with Christ results in justification. It results in us being declared righteous. And um, that justification is based on Christ's death as our substitute. Turn, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 53 with me. Isaiah chapter 53. Someone read verses 4 through 6. So there's the there's the exchange that's taking place, the substitution that that uh, that I've mentioned before. That is that Christ took our place on the cross, um, and that's really why we want to spend so much time on on His cross work last week, because there is this transaction that takes place that that is not felt, and that is a transaction of our sin being credited to or or debited, we could say, to Christ's account and then Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Um, and a great way to think about that is is uh, comes from a song, really, um, that we're going to learn next month called His Robes for Mine. And and the, the way that song goes, basically, that, that we take our robe of sin and we put it on Christ, Christ takes it and God sees Christ as having sinned even though He didn't. He sees Christ as a sinner really and judges Him as such. Um, And then we take Christ's robe of righteousness, His perfect life, and we wear it. And and now we have been treated like Christ. And that's really what's going on here. You see um, at the end of verse 6 it says, "...but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him." Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So, He bore our sins so that we wouldn't have to to bear the punishment that they deserve. Justification is a result of the believer's union with Christ. It's based on Christ's death as our substitute. It's a legal transfer. Again, this is think think courtroom um, type of language. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. That Christ experienced our punishment so that we would not have to. And um, again, that that comes through faith and repentance. The the instrumentality of it, um, it's not it's not really based on our faith. That's really just a, a mechanism that God uses to bring him, bring us to our, to Himself. 
It's based on Christ's righteousness. Our, our salvation is based on Christ's righteousness. And obviously, what this does for us is it produces a positive relationship with God. This is the way Paul says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what that suggests is that we were not at peace with God before we were justified, right? That we were at enmity with God. We, were, we, we hated God. And so through justification, through this union with Christ that, that results from salvation, we now are at peace with God. That's why we said that, that Jesus, one of the benefits of the atonement was reconciliation. God reconciles God to us and us to God. He brings the two parties together and says, I know there are differences, but here's how they're going to be reconciled. God, your holiness demands punishment, so you punish me. Okay, And you, you, you need to come to God, but you can't in the way that you are, so I'm going to take your sin upon myself. And so Jesus becomes our mediator, our reconciler. So you have this first positive positional um, benefit of union with Christ, justification. Any questions on that? Okay, number two, adoption. Adoption. Again, think legal terms. This is something you're not going to feel when you come to Christ. It is a legal placement of one as a son and an heir, or as a child and an heir. Um, that means that we've been placed into God's family and we've been given all the rights uh, and privileges of God's Son. Okay, think, think about it this way. If, if there were a king in the land and you were a um, criminal, okay, there, it would be one thing for the king to say, I take away um, all, all the punishment that you deserve and I'm going to, to just wipe that, that problem away. Okay, it'd be one thing to do that. Now you'd just be a commoner in the land. But here's what God does okay, as the king. He not only wipes away the punishment where you have all the disdain as a criminal, but He also gives you positive benefits. Do you see how that's... He actually says, come into my family. You're going to be treated not just like a common person in the land who's never done any crimes. You're going to be treated like my son, my, my heir. You're, you're going to inherit... My estate. Okay, that's what Christ did. He took away the negative, the negative, which was we were criminals. We deserved to be judged, executed before the king. But he also put us on a positive standing. You're in my family. That's what adoption is. It's a work of God. Again, um, it is a work of God. Turn to uh, Galatians chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And uh, you, you should recognize this language, this adoption language that is in the New Testament, that we have this special relationship. Uh, God is our Father, um, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Would someone read that for us? All right, so so not only has your penalty been wiped away, but now you have become 
part of God's family. And again, this is um, this is a result of, of what God has done. This is the work that God has done. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, He predestined us to be adopted as sons. And this is a result of believers' union with Christ. Look at verse 27 there in Galatians 3. For you are all baptized into Christ. Uh, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Then verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, verse 26 said that you are all sons through faith, that it comes as a result of our union with Christ. When we are united with Christ, then now we not only become justified that we are declared righteous, but we're also adopted into God's family. And, of course, this has lots of practical benefits, um, as we can imagine. It results in the leading of the Spirit. Romans 8.14, a a verse we had on on the sign out front for a while was, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, that is, those who are, we could say it the opposite way too, those who are sons of God are led by the Spirit. So that's one of the benefits of being part of God's family. We're actually led by the Spirit. No longer are we following after our former master sin, but now we're being led by the Spirit, following after for following after righteousness. Um, Spirit illuminates the believer, helping him to understand the significance of Scripture. And then a second benefit, practical benefit, is loving discipline by the Father. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this. Um, do not take lightly the Lord's discipline because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. That um, one of the benefits of being adopted by God is He does not let you go astray. He does not let you go back to your former way of life. So as an adopted child of God, you are disciplined so that you're reminded whose son you are, whose daughter you are. And you're, you're kept in line um, as far as righteousness is concerned. So, justification and adoption. Any questions on that? Comments? All right. I think that's supposed to say... Did I skip one? I think I might have skipped the whole section here. On your... On my... Uh... All right. Well, let me talk about internal security. It might pop up somewhere down the road. Maybe got it out of order. That was supposed to be eternal security. So, eternal security is the next positional benefit. Again, think legal. This is something that you don't see. You can't know for sh- I mean, you can't, uh, you can't see God's side of it. This is really from God's perspective. And it is that, uh, it, it, it refers to um, the fact that God saves all etern- all true believers eternally and finally, that He secures them, that they are kept for salvation by God Himself. Um, And again, you see here, it is a work of God. Eternal security is a work of God. It's a result of, of God's ownership of the believer. He's saying, listen, 
I've bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ. I bought you with that blood. So, so I will not let you go. Philippians 1.6 says it this way. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. He won't stop keeping you. Turn to John 10 because this is the, the best proof, the best support from Scripture tells us that we are eternally saved, that, that, that we cannot be lost again. We can't get saved and then lose our salvation. Once saved, always saved. John chapter 10. Jesus is talking about His sheep and um, and His sheep he, he refers to here, who He's referring to here are believers. John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Okay, and then notice this next part. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, God secures those who are His. He will not let them go. He won't let anyone take them out of His hand. And they can't choose to leave His hand either. Okay, That's including uh, the person himself. He can't say, well, you know, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Well, if a person says that, then they probably never were a Christian in the first place. And that was probably, again, back to the soils, probably one of those soils that sprouted up quickly but never bore fruit, um, maybe choked out by the desires of the world, or, or maybe it never took root and so it died because of the heat. But, but that's just from our perspective. From God's perspective, those that are truly believers will take root. And so He's holding them. He won't let them go. Um, so eternal security is the work of God. Secondly, it's a, a result of our union with Christ. Don't need that. Uh, it's the result of our union with Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight one says. And then eternal security is God's will for all believers. In John chapter six verse thirty nine it says, "This is the will of Him uh, who sent me that I shall lose none that He has given me, but raise them up." on the last day. That means that Christ will save and keep all those who are His. lost my hand out here. There we go. Alright, so those are the positional benefits um, that belong to a believer as a result of union with Christ. That we are declared righteous, justified, that we are brought into God's family, adopted, and that we are kept all the way till the end, eternal security. Any questions on those positional, legal benefits? All right, well, now let's move to the practical benefits, and there are four of them. Two of them are, I believe, for all ages of believers, and the last two are for church-age believers. Okay, These are more practical benefits things that we can 
see progress in and, and growth and so on. The first is perseverance. This is really the counterpart to eternal security. Eternal security is God keeping a believer all the way till the end. That's from God's perspective. We can't see that. Okay, we can't see. Okay, I'm going to to look into God's mind and see if person A is eternally secure. We can't see that. That's all from God's perspective. So this really is from our perspective. That is perseverance. If a person, we see a person's life and they persevere in the faith all the way till the end, then we know that they were saved. Okay? So, so that's what perseverance has to do with. The believer will continually live like a Christian and specifically in four main areas. Number one, the true gospel. That they will not deny the gospel. First John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out, John says, showed that they were not with us. His point there is not, okay, these people left the church. They they went to a different church. He's He's not talking about church membership here. He's talking about people who've denied the gospel. And the reason we know that they're not true believers, they're not really with us they're not really people who belong to us is because they went out from us they they denied the gospel hebrews 3:14 says we've come to share in christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first paul says a very similar thing in galatians as we've been seeing on sunday mornings that that if if someone teaches a different gospel than they are to be accursed. So if you deny the gospel, if at one time you accepted it and then another time you deny it, then that shows that you didn't, you, you didn't persevere. So you never really did accept the gospel. And the gospel, according to First John, really is that Jesus came in the flesh, that He died and, and rose for us. Number two, second main area in which believers will continually uh, press on, persevere, is in basic Christian doctrine. Basic Christian doctrine. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll see this. Colossians chapter 1. Would someone read verses 22 and 23 for us? Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, all right, so verse 22, He has reconciled you. And then verse 23, if. He's reconciled you if. You hold fast to the gospel. True, we talked about that. Just That was the first point. But actually, notice the word in verse 23, faith. That if you, if you continue in the faith. And there Paul is talking about really more than just the gospel. He's talking about a, a basic um, Christian doctrine here the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, that a person who denies these things at some point shows that they have not persevered and and will have 
um, shown that they never really were a Christian. So a real believer is going to persevere in true gospel and basic Christian doctrine. And then number three, growth in godliness. Growth in godliness. So first two really have to do with more of a doctrinal test. This has to do more with the moral test. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. In fact, uh, we, we could have just parked here in 1 John because there's so many verses that speak to this area of perseverance. And um, 1 John chapter 2, someone read verses 3 and 4. All right, what happens to a believer when they get saved? They come completely, perfectly righteous at that time? No, they're seen as righteous by God, but they personally are not righteous. We still are sinners. So, so, but, but what does happen is God changes that person from being a slave of sin, remember, to a slave of righteousness, slave of Christ. And so that means that there's going to be a change of life. And so John makes it very clear that if we have come to know Him, then we're going to obey His commands. We're going to follow Christ. We're going to, to, um, to be Christ-like. We're going to at least be becoming Christ-like. There should be a, a growth and a desire to grow um, until He finally purifies us, which will happen at our glorification. All right, next. Genuine believers will remain committed to true gospel, Christian doctrine, growth in godliness, and good works. Good works. Turn to chapter 3. And uh, Retta, would you read verses 16 through 18? All right, so specifically John's talking about good works within what context? Do you notice what kind of words he was using there in verse 16? Um, verse, um, yeah, verse 16, the very last word. Verse 17, middle of the verse. Talking about who? Believers. Believers. Okay, he's saying the brethren, brothers. If you see... If you have the world's good and you see a brother in need, he's not just saying any person out there in the world, okay, your neighbor, whatever. He's talking about believers. So specifically, John's talking about you need to, to persevere in good works among believers. And then uh, we also need to persevere in good works outside the body of Christ, so both within and outside. Because Galatians 6.10 says, uh, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. But then even Paul says here, especially those who are of the family of God. So he says, in a broad perspective, you need to do good works to all people, but it should be especially done within the context of the body of Christ. But uh, even in that, we see that there should be good works being done to all people. 
Um, so that doesn't mean that every second of every believer's life is always in conformity to these four things. Okay, there are times when when we may doubt some of these things or or turn against some of these things where we actually take steps backwards in our growth in godliness. Right? We may not care about or want to do good works at times, but that should not be the pattern of our lives as Christians. That should not be how we end up. We should finally uh, be faithful in all these things. Perseverance. This is more a practical benefit of union with Christ. Any thoughts or questions on that? All right, next, sanctification. Sanctification just simply means growth in godliness. The believer has been set apart by God from the world to himself, and it results in a continual progressive change that comes through the Spirit by the Word. Okay, so justification, think legally, God sets us apart and says, you are mine. You look like Christ to me. You, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Sanctification is now that you do look like that, I need to make you personally more holy, so I'm going to grow you until the place where we are in the third aspect, which we're not going to talk about today, is glorification, where God finally makes us like Christ, where we are perfect in perfect conformity to God's desires. But see, we have this progress that's going on in our lives from justification to glorification where God is making us more and more righteous. And He does that through in a specific way. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. There's a lot we could say about sanctification. I'm going to have to make it brief, but um, this is the best verse, in my view, on sanctification. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord Spirit. Okay, Paul's saying we as believers now have an unveiled face. The idea there is that the, that the Spirit now illuminates us. And, and the way that He does that is by having us look into, look at verse 18, into the mirror of the glory of the Lord. The way that we see God's glory in this age is through the Word. And that mirror reflects for us not only who God is, but who we are. And as we do that, notice what the the verse says, that we are being metamorphosized. We are being transformed. That's the idea there. Into the same image from glory. We're, We're being transformed into the same image that the Word shows. And notice how it happens. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so your first blank there is that it happens uh, by the Spirit through the Word. It happens through the Word. And as we are reflecting on the Word of God, God uses it to transform us, to change us. Sanctification is guaranteed for a believer, but it's not automatic. Okay, It doesn't happen without us doing anything. 
We don't just uh, say, you know, I want to be sanctified, so sanctify me, God. No, he's, He does it through the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Word. That's why we constantly need to be looking into the Word, why we need to be reading it on our own, why we need to be sitting under its teaching. Number two, um, it involves active obedience. We, we uh, can easily fall into the fall, fall prey to the mindset that the Christian life is really mystical and that we just need to wait for, for the Holy Spirit to move us. And with that sort of mindset, we, we really see the Christian life as a passive activity. It's kind of an oxymoron, but, but passive. We see it passively as if we just kind of float and, and don't do anything. But, but the Scriptures are, are constantly uh, urging us to, to give ourselves, to pray, to, to read the Scriptures, to, to uh, encourage one another. There, there's command after command after command. And what that tells us is that, that the real work of sanctification happens as we actively obey what we see in the Word. And then it involves a change of direction. Before we came to Christ, we were slaves of sin. But after, um, our direction changes. And that means that that we were separated from uh, worldliness and we embraced godliness. Then number four, sanctification is an element of saving faith. Saving faith, which is uh, an act of obedience. And uh, if you look up those verses there, James chapter 2, you'll see that it's also um, described as obedient faith. James there is talking about, um, he's trying to show that there's no such thing as a, a disobedient faith. That, that can't happen. It says faith, faith without works is what? It's dead. So it can't happen. So there's no such thing as a disobedient faith. A real faith actually obeys. That's his point. Not that we have to obey in order to believe. No, he says those who truly have faith will obey. It doesn't make sense to have one without the other. And um, and so that's what he's talking about there in James chapter 2. So, perseverance and and then sanctification, two practical benefits. We've got to get to these last two quickly. And then I'll see if you have any questions. First of all, we have assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation comes when a believer understands the promises of God that He will save and keep them. Okay, so there's three main ways in which we have we can have assurance of salvation. That we understand and and um, trust in the promises of God to save and to keep us. John 3.16 is a classic verse, obviously, that God loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. It's very simple. Do we believe in Him? Okay, when we do, when we believe in that promise of God, then we're going to have assurance of salvation. And that's going to be coupled with these other two, but but that's 
at the very heart. If we don't believe this, okay, even a believer can can question this at times. Go, you know, I don't I don't really know. Then we're not going to have assurance of salvation. It doesn't mean we're not saved, but we're not going to have assurance of it. And this is something that is and unique and special to the church age believer. Secondly, a genuine believer should understand his perseverance to be a result of salvation. As uh, Paul read earlier, 1 John 2, we know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, so our assurance is tied to our perseverance. Do you see? That as we're perseverance. As we're persevering, we're understanding and believing the gospel, believing the Christian doctrine, as we're growing in godliness, as we're doing good works. Okay, we, we could say that those two are kind of working together. As we are persevering, our assurance of salvation is, is kind of on the same plane. But, but when we're not persevering, we shouldn't expect to have assurance of salvation. Do you see? When when we're not persevering, we shouldn't expect to have assurance. So that doesn't mean we lost our salvation necessarily. There there can be times in the Christian life where we're moving and then we have these little dips in our Christian faith. But overall, there should be a general projection upward in our growth in godliness. There will be times when we when we fail. We have to recognize that. Okay, the Christian life is not like this. Okay, we get saved down here, and then we have some special moment here where we get on this higher plane and we never have any problems again. Is that the way your life is? Not the way my life is. And this is me more. I, I read somewhere the, the illustration of a person using a, a yo-yo walking, walking up the stairs. That's what our Christian life is. We're like the yo-yo. Okay, the, the yo-yo is going up and down, but overall we're moving up. So that at the end, there may be times where they're dipping, but but when the yo-yo goes down at the tenth stair from where it was, even at its highest, at the bottom stair, it's even a, a greater um, greater progress than we had before. So as we persevere, our assurance of salvation is more clear to us. So um, as we believe the promises of God, as we persevere, and then thirdly, this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let me read for you Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the sons of God. God reveals to us, somehow He works with our internal spirit and says, yes, you are a child of God. Now, it's not going to be an audible voice. It's probably actually working with these other two that the Spirit's testifying to us as we're persevering and believing God's promise that, yes, you are. Don't let Satan try to get you to doubt that because you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are trusting in Jesus Christ, and it's, re- it's, it's showing forth in the way that you're living. So the Spirit testifies with us. He convinces us in our minds that we are children of God. And so I would say that those three things work together uh, but but also should be um, but also should be taken apart separately and looked at individually. 
All right, finally, Christian unity, this special uh, bond that we have as believers. It's a, it's a spiritual bond that we have among all believers, and it's, it's especially expressed in our local church. Okay, we, we, we do have a special bond with, let's say, people who have been saved through some of our missionaries, or you, know, you meet somebody when you go out of town that's a Christian, and, and immediately you have this connection this bond, because you recognize that you and they are both of Jesus Christ. But there's a special visible expression of that in our local church where we're able to see that unity and and feel it, I guess you could say, even more uh, clearly. John uh, 17, 21, Jesus prays three times that they all may be one. And, And you know what the... Do you know what the standard is for our oneness, our unity? Jesus prays, just as you and I are one, just as we are one. You know the unity that Jesus has with his Father? That's the type of Father, that's the type of unity that he prays that we have in this church. He prays that we are unified like he and the Father are. Romans 12:4, this unity shows forth in both times of grief and times of suffering, or in times of joy. Because we are many members, and we're many members in Christ, but individual members of one another, and all the members are of one body, though they are one. And uh, I, I thought I had the verse there, but the one where it says, um, you know, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer, and so on. When one part has joy, we all have joy. Let me just leave you with a um, a text from a song called um, "How Deep," and it talks about our our union with Christ. That that Christ did all of these things in order for for us to have life. It says, "You were broken, that I might be healed. You were cast off, that I might draw near. You were thirsty, that I might come." come and drink, cried out in anguish that I might sing. You knew darkness that I might know light, wept great tears that I, that mine might be dry, stripped of glory that I might be clothed, crushed by your Father to call me your own. Alright, it's time for a couple quick questions or comments. Any? Yes, Bill. Yeah. Is that verse 26 of of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Okay. Thank you. Ken? Uh, I was just thinking when you were talking about our work and our assurance and those things um, that people are going to come to Christ in the end, in the end and say, did we do all these marvelous things? Because they do have some of those things that need to be careful with our faith. Hmm. Our works and the assurance that we have in ourselves. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you don't want to take those, any one of those, apart from the other. Those, those really have to go together. That, um, and again, these are evidences of. So we never can put our our stock in the evidences. We always put our stock in Jesus Christ. That is, our our the reason that we can be accepted before God is, as you're saying, 
Not because of all these things. Okay, those are results. Those are fruit. But but it's because of Jesus Christ. Okay, my my faith is in in Him, and that's exactly right. If you if if that's where you're looking constantly, my works, and that's the only thing you're looking at, then you're going to be disappointed because your works are like this, right? They're up and down at times. And as you're doing lots of works, you're feeling like you're really saved. And as you're not doing lots of works, you're not feeling very saved. And so that's why it's always got to be something in, that is constant. Jesus Christ has finished work. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Yes. Yep, and again, thank God that our um, salvation is not based on things like that. They're based on Jesus Christ, His robe of righteousness that we would now wear. All right, let's pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank You for the union with Christ that we can have and how it results in our growth in godliness and our um, understanding more clearly of the truth of Your Word and, and responding to it. We're also uh, thankful for the union that we can have as a body of believers who represent our Savior. And we pray that you would help us to uh, grow in our love for one another and that we would seek to encourage one another and, uh, and have this special fellowship that really is unmatched in history and can only be done as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the, the great institution that you have designed of the local church. Uh, we look forward to um, the, the next hour in which we can reflect on Your Word and worship You further in our singing and giving and in our fellowship and, and in our responding to Your Word. We pray that You would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.